Christ wants you to be confident and to be authentic. By this we know that we are authentic. How can we be authentic followers if we deny Jesus and not ourselves? By not seeking and obeying nor loving others? By serving ourselves and not Jesus? We are a ship without a rudder, claiming to be a house built upon the rock. Let us know God and make him known. Let us not walk in darkness, but in light, being sanctified and loving others selflessly. By this we know we are authentic followers of Jesus. Well, good morning. Glad that you're here this morning. To my fellow allergy sufferers, I say I feel your pain. So I have been struggling. And I told the staff this morning, I said, I did a double dose of medication. So if I just fall over, if I say something, just blame it on the medication, all right? Just shut the lights out and head to the house. It's all good. So one of the, uh, one of the consequences is my mouth is super dry, but that's better than being snotty up here, right? So we have had a great day thus far. I had the privilege in the 830 service of hearing our oldest choir sing, so our joy choir, our senior adult choir. So I got to hear our oldest choir this morning and our youngest choir. And as I was thinking, we are really, really blessed here at Emmanuel. This is such a wonderful, wonderful church. So we're going to be in uh, 1 John chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 4 through 10 if you want to try and find your way there. Uh, last week, Aaron shared with us and he talked about the greatest moment of his life. You remember that when he met Chipper Jones out here at Santa Fe Restaurant and just kind of blurted out, this is the best day of my life. Well, I got to thinking about that, and I thought, you know what? I, I've never met any famous people. I haven't lived a very good life. And then I started thinking about these great days in my life. So I thought about the day I graduated high school. I mean, that was a great day, done with high school, finished with that. And I thought, nah, that's not really the best day of my life. And then I thought about when I was at college and I met my wife. She wasn't my wife when I met her, so I asked her out and she said yes, and I was shocked by that. And then uh, next thing I know, I'm proposing to her and she says yes to that. And I'm like, goodness, this girl needs some glasses. And then we get married. That's the best day of my life. And then a few years later, we have three children and our family is complete. And I'm thinking, well, that's the best day of my life. And then you fast forward and that's kind of how time goes, goes like that. You blink your eyes and all three of my children are now married. I have two additional sons and an additional daughter, and I'm like, wow, that is the best day of my life. And then it happened, really the best day of my life happened. And some of you know what I'm talking about. This little guy came along. That's my grandson, and he, listen, I don't know if you have grandkids or what, but he is the best in the entire, entire world, I promise you, none better. So his name is Everett, and uh, I, I had a hard time finding which pictures that I wanted to show you because I have so many, and I could spend the whole morning talking about him, but I just want to explain to you the picture on the right. So he's in the back of my pickup truck, and on Tuesdays and, and Wednesdays, 
he comes to our Kids for Christ program. So we get him every Tuesday night. That's incredible. I love it. It's amazing. And uh, he woke up that Wednesday morning, and he was in a very foul mood. He woke up early. He was not happy. Rachel goes by the name of Nani. I go by the name of Pops. Nani could not console him, so she left and went to school. She said, you take care of him. So I threw him in the back of my pickup truck, and we headed down to the, to the corner market, and, and I knew what would fix it. So I bought him a package of those little chocolate donuts, you know what I'm talking about? And not just that, I also bought him a package of zingers, the vanilla zingers. Those are, well, part of them were for me too. But so I fed Everett a full zinger and two chocolate donuts, and then I dropped him off at Kids for Christ. <laughs> and look, look at his face. He's got chocolate on his face, but he's so happy. And in light of what we're talking about here today, uh, we're going to deal with a very, very difficult passage of Scripture. We're going to deal with a very hard passage of Scripture. But I want you to know that if you are a legitimate, authentic, true follower of Christ, that he dotes over you the same way I dote over my grandson. That's, just not, that's not all. Watch. Watch this. I got another one coming, too. That's little William. Now, his other grandparents are over there. So, but he's going to, he's, I'm going to be his favorite grandfather, okay? But I get two, and I tell my kids, you know what? Go make more, plenty there. I want plenty, more grandchildren, more grandchildren. If I would have known how amazing grandchildren would have been, we would have started that first, right? <laughs> when my kids hit 13, uh, you're old enough, get married, go have some grandkids for me. <laughs> They're amazing, and I think about that in light of my walk with the Lord and the fact that God is my father. And I wonder if God doesn't walk the streets of gold and show my picture off and say, that's my son. And I am so proud of him. And I love him so much. And you know, um, for me, there's always room for one more grandchild. Always room for one more. Keep bringing them. I'm all about it. And I think about God. There's always room for one more. So if you're here today and maybe you just came to watch the kids sing and you're really not a Christ follower, there's room for one more. God loves you. There's room for you in his family. And I hope by the time we leave here today, you will surrender your life to Christ. So before we read, well, disregard that. Don't, don't look at that right now. Before we read, I want to remind you some things about John and his writing and the reasons for his writing. You'll recall, recall that John primarily is writing for two reasons. He's writing to pro provide assurance of salvation, and he's also writing to combat false teachers. There's false teachers within the church, and he's writing to combat those false teachers and to provide assurance. He's writing to one of four audiences. John is writing to those within the church who are saved, and they know that they're saved. He's writing to those that are saved but are unsure of their salvation. He's writing to those that think they are saved, but in actuality they're not saved, but they don't know that they're lost. And then he's writing to those that are lost and know that they're lost. And it's this third group that he's writing to in the passage that we're going to look at this morning. He's writing to those that think that they're saved, but in actuality they're not saved, but they don't know that they're lost. That is a terrible place to be. That's a horrible place to be. That's the worst place to be, to think that you're secure in Christ, but you're not. 
The best position, of course, of course, is to be saved and to know you're saved. I think even being saved and being unsure of your salvation is better than thinking you're saved when you're really lost. And I would even argue that being lost and knowing that you're lost is better than thinking that you're saved when in actuality you're lost. At least knowing that you're lost, you can be open to the gospel. On the screen, on the screen you see some research from Barna Research. It says this. Barna Research Group found that 35% of Americans 18 year, years or older claim to have made a personal commitment to Jesus. Yet further questions reveal that only 7% hold orthodox views on topics including Bible or biblical inerrancy, salvation, and evangelism. It's heart-wrenching enough that of those they surveyed, only 35% claim to be followers of Christ. But of those 35%, only 7% were biblically sound in their beliefs concerning Scripture and salvation and evangelism. Why is that? Well, I think part of the reason is because we have sold our congregations a cheap grace or a watered-down grace. We're more concerned about putting people in the seats and adding people to our membership that we water down the gospel so that people will come. And in churches all across our nation, there are people seated in these congregations, and they're hearing these watered-down sermons that aren't preaching the truth of Jesus Christ, and they think that they're secure, and they think that they're safe, when in actuality they're lost. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he was a theologian and a pastor during World War II in Germany. And when the churches were embracing the Nazi propaganda, Dietrich was standing against it and saying, this is wrong. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer made this statement about those who have bought into the lie of cheap grace. He said this, for those who bought the lie of cheap grace, the Christian life comes to mean nothing more than living in the world and as the world. In being no different from the world. He says the upshot of all of this is that their only duty as a Christian is to leave the world for an hour or so on Sunday mornings and go to church to be assured that their sins are all forgiven. They need not try to follow Christ for cheap grace, the bitterest foe of discipleship, has freed them from that. That's what John was confronting in the church in the passage that we're going to look at. A cheap grace, thinking that you're secure in Christ when in actuality you're not, you bought a lie. I think one of the most terrifying passages of Scripture is this one from Matthew chapter 7. This is Jesus speaking. He says, Not everyone who calls me Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, that's the one that will. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? These are great things that they're doing. We're prophesying. We're casting out demons. We're doing mighty works. And then Jesus says, But I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you worker 
of lawlessness. It is not my goal to scare you this morning. It is not my goal to cause you to doubt this morning. That is not my goal. Matter of fact, we believe in this thing called security of believers. We believe that all true believers endure to the end. Those whom God has accepted in Christ and sanctified by his spirit will never fall away from the state of grace, but we will persevere to the end. We may fall into sin through neglect and temptation, whereby we grieve the spirit of God, impair graces and comforts that he provides for us and brings reproach on the cause of Christ and temporal judgment on ourselves, but we shall be kept by the power of God through faith and through salvation. So if you're a true follower of Christ, you're secure. But that's not who John is speaking to. In our passage, John is speaking to those who think they're right in Christ, but they are not. And listen, I don't want to scare you, and I don't want to cause you to doubt, but if scaring you wakes you up to the gospel and to the truth that you're not a follower of Christ, then so be it. Would you not rather be scared out of the pit of hell than to be comforted into the pits of hell? Would you rather not hear the truth and know that you can be right in Christ because of what God has done for you? If you're here today and you're not a follower of Christ, he loves you. There's room for you and his family. You don't have to be a child of Satan. God is offering you his grace. So look with me at 1 John chapter 3. We're going to read verses 4 through 10. It says, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So the first thing that we see in this passage is the truth about sin. And John tells us that sin is rebellion against God. In verse 4 he said, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. Now, I don't really need to define for you what sin is, but I'm going to. Sin is that willful disobedience to God's command. It is in practice, it's the created being telling the creator of the universe that we know better than he does. That I can do whatever I want. It's a deliberate rejection of the lordship of Jesus Christ in your life. It fascinates me that we live in a culture that says, I don't want anything to do with your Jesus unless eternity is real. 
I want to do whatever I want to do, however much I want to do it. I want to live outside of righteousness. I want to live in lawlessness because that feels good and it's fun and I enjoy that. But if there is an eternity, then Jesus, you remember me on that day. But the truth of the gospel is you can't have Jesus as your Savior without also having him as your Lord. He's Savior, yes, but he's also Lord. So when we live in in lawlessness, when we live in sin, when we live in this unhindered desire to do whatever we want in contradiction to the truth of God's word, then we're not God's child. Remember, John is confronting the Gnostics within the church. And you remember, we learned this in our first uh, lesson in 1 John, that the Gnostics were teaching that the spirit within man was the only thing that was good. And matter in the physical, that's all evil. So there's a group of the Gnostics that were saying, hey, if the spirit's the only thing that's good and we come to Christ through this special knowledge, then do whatever you want. It doesn't matter. If the if the if matter and the physical, if that's all immaterial, then go do whatever you want and do it as much as you want and don't worry about it because you're safe in the arms of Christ. One commentator said this, for some followers of Gnosticism, this led to gross immorality, insisting that their spiritual knowledge made them pearls which could not be soiled by any mud of this world, and that to the spiritual person, no action is defiling. They gave themselves up to self-indulgence. Doesn't matter. Do whatever you want. And they're spreading that within the church. And John's saying, no, that's not the case. Another commentator said this, the false teachers of John's day were teaching that it was possible somehow or some way to be righteous without doing what is right. And God's word says, no way. So John, that aged apostle that had walked with Jesus and walked all these years telling people about Jesus, saw this infiltrating the church and he told the Christians within the body, he said, wait a minute, sin does matter. The practice of sinning matters. Sin is lawlessness and lawlessness is outright rebellion against God. Second thing he says is that sin stands in opposition to Christ's coming. Why did Jesus come? Verse 5 says, you know that he appeared to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. In verse 8, the latter part of verse 8, it says the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So Jesus Christ came to take away our sin and destroy the works of the devil. He looked at us in our terrible, miserable state in our sin, and he was moved with compassion. And the creator of the universe stepped off his throne in heaven and he put on flesh and he walked amongst us, 100% God and 100% man. And he corrected misunderstanding. He taught the truth of the kingdom of God and he died on a cross and was buried in a borrowed tomb and was resurrected from the dead, victorious over, over death so that he could release us, so that he could take away the guilt of our sin and to destroy the works of the devil. I like how one commentator said it. He said, the warrior lamb who defeated sin is also our champion who has defeated Satan. So when we choose to sin, when we practice sin, 
when we live in sin, we are in effect standing against the very reasons that Jesus Christ came to this earth. And friends, let me tell you, standing against Jesus is a terrible place to be. So sin is rebellion against God. Sin stands in opposition to the reasons that Christ came. And finally, sin is from the devil, and sin is deadly. First part of verse 8 says, whoever makes a practice of sinning is from the devil. I mean, it doesn't pull any punches. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is from the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. This is the first time that John refers specifically to the devil in this letter. And he does so four times in verses 8 through 10. So the devil, he's our great adversary. He's our accuser and our slander. He's a liar and a thief. He is the originator of sin. He's the biggest proponent of sin, and he's a master manipulator. And his goal is one. His goal is to steal, kill, and destroy, and he's hunting you. That's the devil. It's also interesting, though, to note that in verse 8, this is the first of seven times that John refers to Jesus as the Son of God, the deity of God, the Son of God, God in the flesh. So you have the devil and you have God and they come at each other and you know who's victorious. Jesus Christ is victorious. Sin is from the devil and sin is deadly, but the power of Christ is greater. And the true follower of Christ need not fear the devil nor do we need to surrender to the power of sin because we have been set free. Christ has defeated both for us. That leads me to my next major point, the truth about Christians. True Christians do not practice sin and they cannot persist in sin. Verse six says this, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. Verse 9 says this, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. Later on in, in chapter 5, verse 18, John says this, everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. So what does he mean by the practice of sin? And keeps on sinning because we know he's told us in 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, that if we say we're without sin, that we're liars. So we know that we're sinners. He's told us we're sinners. 1 John 1, 9, he says, if we confess our sins, then God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So John, what are you saying? You're telling me if I sin, I'm not in Christ. No, he's saying if you live in sin, if you practice sin, meaning if you continually and willfully break God's laws without any conviction or any remorse. He's talking about a deliberate indifference to the laws of God and to God himself what he's talking about and those that do this according to 1 John 3 6 says they have neither seen nor do they know Christ let me be, be very honest with you if you can live in sin and there's no conviction there's no remorse there's no chastening by the father if you can do that, then according to the word of God, you're not God's. You're not a child of God. And like I've said, I'd much rather, I would much rather be scared out of the pits of hell than to be comforted into the pits of hell. 
He's not speaking of sinless perfection. So although we as authentic followers of Christ sin from time to time, we don't practice sin. And we don't persist in sin because we can't, because that cycle of sin has been broken in our lives. Verse 6 says the power of sin is broken as we abide in Christ. Verse 9 says the power of sin is broken when we're born of God. That's when we're justified. And that continues being broken as his seed abides in us. When I come to Christ, I'm justified. When God sees me, when I come to him in repentance and receive his gift of grace and mercy, then I am justified. When God sees me, he sees me robed in the righteousness of Christ. And as I live my life and he abides in me and I abide in him and his, sin with his, his seed is planted within me and I have that new nature that I'm sanctified, God continues day by day chipping away the rough edges of Scott Schooler to make me more like Jesus Christ. And one day when I die or when he returns and I'm in his presence, then I'll be glorified. And this battle against sin, Paul's the one that says the things that I know I should do, I don't do, and the things I shouldn't be doing, these are the things I find myself doing. What a wicked man, what a wretched man am I. So you fight that battle and you fight faithfully and you fight with God's seed and God's new nature. And then one day when we stand before God, we'll be glorified. One commentator said it like this, the new birth involves such a radical change at the heart of our experience that whereas sin used to come naturally, now it is unnatural to continue in sin. The life of God within us begins to expel and destroy our old habits and characteristics. The speed and depth of the change within us will largely depend on the extent to which we allow the Holy Spirit to control each area of our lives. One commentator said this, it's impossible for a true believer in Christ to continue in sin because it goes against his spiritual DNA. We've been reborn. We were dead, now we're alive. The old is gone, all has become new. I don't have to live in sin because I've been set free because of what Christ has done for me on the cross. And if I continue in sin, if I have a life of sin, if I persist in sin, then I'm not a follower of Christ. John Stott said this, if Christ appeared first both to take away our sin and to destroy the devil's work, and if when he appears a second time we shall see him, and in consequence, we shall be like him. How can we possibly go on living in sin? And the answer is we can't. It's impossible. Danny Aiken said this, by means of Jesus' atonement, sin's penalty has been nullified for the child of God. By means of the new birth, sin's power has been neutralized and dealt a death blow, and by virtue of Jesus' two appearings, his birth and his coming return, sin's presence will soon pass away forever. So authentic Christians cannot, we cannot make a practice of sinning, nor can we persist in sinning. We cannot, it is impossible. So what do we do then? Well, that's John's next point. True Christians practice righteousness. Verse 7 says, Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. 
I love the fact that John can be so, so black and white. And some of the things he has to say are so powerful. And he doesn't pull any punches, but yet he has the love of a father, really the love of a grandfather. He says, little children, let no one deceive you. I can only imagine the heartbreak that John must have sensed as he looked across the congregation in that church in Ephesus and saw those that were buying into the lie of the false prophets. And he says, little children, don't let anyone deceive you. Those of us that have come to faith in Christ, we live in righteousness. We live righteous lives. And listen, we don't do that to to merit God's favor, to, to earn God's favor. We don't do that to sustain God's favor. When I come to Christ and I have salvation through what Christ has done on the cross, I'm adopted into the family of God for all of eternity. If I'm a legitimate child of God, then I am for all of eternity. So I live a life of gratitude. I live righteously because I have God's seed planted inside me, because the Spirit of God lives within me, because he dictates my life. I do it because I love him. Not because they're the don't do this and do do this. It's because I love you, God. I'm going to live my life righteously for you. And that's proof that I'm a child of you. It's not to earn or merit his favor. I mentioned earlier this doctrine of the security of believer. I've talked a lot about that. Some may have heard it referred to as once saved, always saved. Not everybody agrees with us on this. Some people believe that you can lose your salvation. I don't believe that's biblical. I believe if you're legitimately a child of God, then you are secure. Just like my grandson is my grandson, regardless of what he does. Will he disappoint me? Sure he will. Has he already? Yes, he has. But I still love him. And when he does wrong, we correct him, but he's still my grandson. And he'll be my grandson for all of his existence and all of my existence. If you're God's child, a legitimate child of God, then you're God's child for all of eternity. There's an old professor named W.T. Connor that was a theologian, professor of theology at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. He had given a talk. And somebody had asked a question about security of the believer, and once saved, always saved. And the guy that was asking it was a skeptic. He said, Dr. Connor, I don't believe that's true. I don't believe that's biblical. I think you Baptists especially, you just use that as a crutch to do whatever you want. Once saved, always saved, I can do whatever I want. And Dr. Connor thought for a minute, and he said this. He said, yes, sir, you are correct. I do indeed do whatever I want to do, but in regeneration, Christ did something to my wanter. I just don't want to do the things that you're talking about. If you're a legitimate follower of Christ, you don't want to do those things. You have been set free. You are not enslaved to sin anymore. Galatians 5, 16 to 24 says this, Paul speaking to the church at Galatia. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do, those right things. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now listen, now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, 
and things like this. Listen to what Paul says. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. If that defines your life, then you're not a legitimate child of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. When we come to Christ, we live righteous lives as Christ lived a righteous life because we've been crucified with Christ. And our desire, like Christ's desire, is to do the will of the Father. One last truth. That's the truth that true Christians love others. He speaks of this in verse 10, that if we're true Christians, we're going to love the brothers and sisters in Christ. He's already taught us that. He's introducing the next few verses, so I'm not going to go into that because Aaron's going to share that with us next week. But he reminds us, we live righteous lives and we love others. So now this is my final point. We're closing things out. Let's talk about the truth about you. This is really test time. And the question is on the screen. Who's your father? John's already taught us throughout our letter. We've already learned throughout this letter. We've already learned from verse one, uh, from chapter one, verse three, that those that are Christians enjoy fellowship with Christ and his children. Verses six through seven of chapter one, those that are true Christians walk in light, not in darkness. Verse eight of chapter one, we admit and confess our sins and seek forgiveness. Verses 3 through 5 of chapter 2, we obey God. Verse 15 of chapter 2, we love God, not the things of the world. Verse 29 of chapter 2, we do what is right. Last week we learned that we maintain a pure life. This morning we learned that we do not live in sin, but we practice righteousness and we love others. If that defines you, then you're a child of God. You're in right relationship with the Father. But if that doesn't define you, then you have, to answer, you have to answer the question, who's your father? Your father is Satan. But he doesn't have to be. So I started this morning talking about the best day of my life. Graduation was great. Marriage was wonderful. My kids are great. My grandkids are unbelievable. But th- none of those, as good as they were, none of those were the best day of my life. The best day of my life happened when I was seven years old at a little church in Dewey, Oklahoma. When God called me to be his child. And I answered that call. And as a seven-year-old, I surrendered my life to Christ. You know what Jesus did? He wrote my name in the Lamb's book of life for all of eternity. And I can only imagine that he walked the streets of heaven And he said, let me show you a picture of my latest son, my newest son. The Bible says that the angels celebrated. Think about that. Little seven-year-old in Dewey, Oklahoma, comes to Christ, and what's happening in heaven? There's a celebration. They want to do the same for you. There's room in his family for one more. There's room in his family for you. 
The question is, who's your father? I'm going to ask you to bow your heads. Don't gather your stuff. I just want to ask you a couple of questions to end my time. Why are you here today? Why are you here? Are you here because somebody drug you to church? Are you here to see your grandchild sing? Could you care less about Christ? Well, he cares a lot about you. He loves you. Recognize and accept that love. If you're not a child of God, what's holding you back? Is there some sin that you're dealing with and you think you've got to fix yourself? You don't have to fix yourself before you come to Christ. Yes, we repent of our sins and we come to Christ. I like what one old theologian said. He said, by a carpenter, mankind was made. And only by that carpenter can mankind be remade. Let God do what he's good at. Let him fix what's wrong with you. But you come to him as Savior and Lord. If you're a child of God here today and you know it, but you find yourself caught up in sin, why? Why would you go back to what God has released you from? You've been set free. We've been called to live righteous lives. Repent and turn away from that and have that relationship restored. And finally, the question of the day. Who's your father? You have to ask and answer that. You have to. Because your, your eternity depend, depends on that. My prayer is the answer that you say is that, that God is my father. And that your actions show it. Father, thank you for your word. It's a hard truth, but it's truth nonetheless. And we need to hear that truth. Father, if we're playing games, if we, we think we're right because we prayed a prayer a long time ago, but there's been no life change in our lives, there's no fruit that we're a follower of you, we'd rather do the things of Satan, then we're not yours. And Father, I pray that you would open spiritual eyes and that you would tenderize calloused hearts and that those that don't know you would today, before they leave this place, come to know you as Savior and Lord. We love you, Jesus' name. In a few minutes after the announcement,